0: Chapter eleven of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, eighteen eighty six to eighteen eighty seven. Meeting the Yankee. It was in Warwick Castle that I came across this curious stranger whom I am going to talk about. He attracted me by three things, his candid simplicity, his marvelous familiarity with ancient armor, and the restfulness of his company, for he did all the talking. We fell together, as modest people will, in the tale of the herd that was being shown through, and he at once began to say things which interested me. As he talked along, softly, pleasantly, flowingly, he seemed to drift away imperceptibly out of this world and time, and into some remote era and old forgotten country. And so he gradually wove such a spell about me, that I seemed to move among the specters and shadows, and dust and mould of a grey antiquity, holding speech with a relic of it exactly as I would speak of my nearest personal friends or enemies, or my most familiar neighbors, he spoke of Sir Bedivere, Sir Bors de Gannis, Sir Launcelot of the Lake, Sir Galahad, and all the other great names of the table round, and how old, old, unspeakably old, and faded and dry, and musty and ancient, he came to look as he went on. Presently he turned to me and said, just as one might speak of the weather, or any other common matter, you know about transmigration of souls, do you know about transposition of epochs and bodies? I said I had not heard of it. He was so little interested, just as when people speak of the weather, that he did not notice whether I made him any answer or not there was half a moment of silence immediately interrupted by the droning voice of the salaried cicerone. ancient hauberk date of the sixth century time of king arthur and the round table said to have belonged to the knight of sir sagramor le Desirus. observe the round hole through the chain mail in the left breast can't be accounted for supposed to have been done with a bullet since invention of firearms, perhaps maliciously, by Cromwell's soldiers. My acquaintance smiled, not a modern smile, but one that must have gone out of general use many, many centuries ago, and muttered, apparently to himself, "'Wit ye well, I saw it done.' Then, after a pause, added, "'I did it myself.' By the time I had recovered from the electric surprise of this remark, he was gone. All that evening I sat by my fire at the Warwick Arms, steeped in a dream of the olden time, while the rain beat upon the windows and the wind roared about the eaves and corners. From time to time I dipped into old Sir Thomas Mallory's enchanting book, and fed at it its rich feast of prodigies and adventures, breathed in the fragrance of its obsolete names, and dreamed again. As I laid the book down, there was a knock at the door, and my stranger came in. I gave him a pipe and a chair, and made him welcome. I also comforted him with a hot scotch whiskey, gave him another one, then still another, hoping always for his story. After a fourth persuader, he drifted into it himself, in a quite simple and natural way. THE STRANGER'S HISTORY i am an american i was born and reared in hartford in the state of connecticut anyway just over the river in the country so i am a yankee of the yankees and practical yes and nearly barren of sentiment i suppose or poetry in other words my father was a blacksmith my uncle was a horse-doctor and i was both along at first then i went over to the great arms factory and learned my real trade learned all there was to it, learned to make everything—guns, revolvers, cannon, boilers, engines, all sorts of labor-saving machinery. Why, I could make anything a body wanted, anything in the world. It didn't make any difference what. And if there wasn't any quick new-fangled way to make a thing, I could invent one, and do it as easy as rolling off a log. I became head superintendent, had a couple of thousand men under me well a man like that is a man that is full of fight that goes without saying with a couple of thousand men under one one has plenty of that sort of amusement i had anyway at last i met my match and i got my dose it was during a misunderstanding conducted with crowbars with a fellow we used to call hercules he laid me out with a crusher alongside the head that made everything crack and seemed to spring every joint in my skull and make it overlap its neighbor. Then the world went out in darkness, and I didn't feel anything more, and didn't know anything at all, at least for a while. When I came to again, I was sitting under an oak tree, on the grass, with a whole beautiful and broad country landscape all to myself, nearly. Not entirely, for there was a fellow on a horse, looking down at me, a fellow fresh out of a picture book. He was in old-time iron armor from head to heel, with a helmet on his head, the shape of a nail-keg, with slits in it. And he had a shield and a sword and a prodigious spear. And his horse had armor on, too, and a steel horn projecting from his forehead, and gorgeous red and green silk trappings that hung down all around him, like a bed-quilt, nearly to the ground. "'Fair sir, will ye just?' said this fellow. "'Will I which? Will you try a passage of arms for land or lady, or for—' "'What are you giving me?' I said. "'Get along back to your circus, or I'll report you.' "'Now what does this man do, but fall back a couple of hundred yards, and then come rushing at me as hard as he could tear, with his nail-keg bent down nearly to his horse's neck, and his long spear pointed straight ahead?' I saw he meant business, so I was up the tree when he arrived. He allowed that I was his property, the captive of his spear. There was argument on his side, and the bulk of the advantage, so I judged it best to humour him. We fixed up an agreement, whereby I was to go with him, and he was not to hurt me. I came down, and we started away, I walking by the side of his horse. We marched comfortably along, through glades and over brooks, which I could not remember to have seen before, which puzzled me and made me wonder, and yet we did not come to any circus or sign of a circus. So I gave up the idea of a circus, and concluded he was from an asylum. But we never came to an asylum, so I was up a stump, as you may say. I asked him how far we were from Hartford. He said he had never heard of the place which I took to be a lie, but allowed it to go at that. At the end of an hour, we saw a far away town sleeping in a valley by a winding river, and, beyond it on a hill, a vast grey fortress with towers and turrets, the first I had ever seen out of a picture. "'Bridgeport,' said I, pointing. "'Camelot,' said he. My stranger had been showing signs of sleepiness he caught himself nodding, now, and smiled one of those pathetic, obsolete smiles of his, and said, ''I find I can't go on, but come with me. I've got it all written out, and you can read it if you like.'' In his chamber he said, ''First I kept a journal, then by and by, after years, I took the journal and turned it into a book. How long ago that was!'' He handed me his manuscript, and pointed out the place where i should begin begin here i've already told you what goes before he was steeped in drowsiness by this time as i went out at his door i heard him murmur sleepily give you good den fair sir i sat down by my fire and examined my treasure the first part of it the great bulk of it was parchment and yellow with age I scanned a leaf particularly, and saw that it was a palimpsest. Under the old dim writing of the Yankee historian appeared traces of a penmanship which was older and dimmer still, Latin words and sentences, fragments from old monkish legends evidently. I turned to the place indicated by my stranger, and began to read. THE ROUND TABLE In the middle of this groined and vaulted public square was an oaken table, which was called the Table Round. It was as large as a circus ring, and around it sat a great company of men dressed in such various and splendid colors that it hurt one's eyes to look at them. They wore their plumed hats right along, except that whenever one addressed himself directly to the king, he lifted his hat a trifle, just as he was beginning his remark. Mainly they were drinking, from entire ox-horns, but a few were still munching bread or gnawing beef-bones. There was about an average of two dogs to one man, and these sat in expectant attitudes till a spent bone was flung to them, and then they went for it by brigades and divisions, with a rush, and there ensued a fight which filled the prospect with a tumultuous chaos of plunging heads and bodies and flashing tails and the storm of howlings and barkings deafened all speech for the time. But that was no matter, for the dog fight was always a bigger interest anyway. The men rose, sometimes, to observe it the better and bet on it, and the ladies and the musicians stretched themselves out over their balusters with the same object, and all broke into delighted ejaculation from time to time in the end the winning dog stretched himself out comfortably with his bone between his paws and proceeded to growl over it and gnaw it and grease the floor with it just as fifty others were already doing and the rest of the court resumed their previous industries and entertainments as a rule the speech and behavior of these people were gracious and courtly and I noticed that they were good and serious listeners when anybody was telling anything— I mean, in a dog fightless interval. And, plainly, too, they were a childlike and innocent lot, telling lies of the stateliest pattern with the most gentle and winning naïveté, and ready and willing to listen to anybody else's lie, and believe it, too. It was hard to associate them with anything cruel or dreadful, and yet they dealt in tales of blood and suffering with a guileless relish that made me almost forget to shudder mainly the round-table talk was monologues narrative accounts of the adventures in which these prisoners were captured and their friends and backers killed and stripped of their steeds and armour as a general thing as far as i could make out these murderous adventures were not forays undertaken to avenge injuries nor to settle old disputes or sudden fallings out no as a rule they were simple duels between strangers duels between people who had never even been introduced to each other and between whom existed no cause of offence whatever many a time i had seen a couple of boys strangers meet by chance and say simultaneously I can lick you, and go at it on the spot. But I had always imagined until now that that sort of thing belonged to children only, and was a sign and mark of childhood. But here were these big boobies, sticking to it and taking pride in it, clear up into full age and beyond. Yet there was something very engaging about these great, simple-hearted creatures, something attractive and lovable. There did not seem to be brains enough in the entire nursery, so to speak, to bait a fish-hook with. But you didn't seem to mind that. After a little, you soon saw that brains were not needed in a society like that, and indeed would have marred it, spoiled its symmetry, perhaps rendered its existence impossible. The Yankee Reflects Why, dear me any kind of royalty howsoever modified any kind of aristocracy howsoever pruned is rightly an insult but if you are born and brought up under that sort of arrangement you probably never find it out for yourself and don't believe it when somebody else tells you it is enough to make a body ashamed of his race to think of the sort of froth that has always occupied its thrones without shadow of right or reason and the seventh-rate people that have always figured as its aristocracies—a company of monarchs and nobles who, as a rule, would have achieved only poverty and obscurity if left, like their betters, to their own exertions. PERFECT GOVERNMENT The despotism of heaven is the one absolutely perfect government an earthly despotism would be the absolutely perfect earthly government if the conditions were the same namely the despot the perfectest individual of the human race and his lease of life perpetual but as a perishable perfect man must die and leave his despotism in the hands of an imperfect successor an earthly despotism is not merely a bad form of government it is the worst form that is possible maids in distress there never was such a country for wandering liars and they were of both sexes hardly a month went by without one of these tramps arriving and generally loaded with a tale about some princess or other wanting help to get her out of some far-away castle where she was held in captivity by a lawless scoundrel usually a giant Now you would think that the first thing the King would do, after listening to such a novelette, from an entire stranger, would be to ask for credentials, yes, and a pointer or two as to the locality of castle, best route to it, and so on. But nobody ever thought of so simple and common sense a thing as that. No, everybody swallowed these people's lies whole, and never asked a question of any sort, or about anything well one day when i was not around one of these people came along it was a she one this time and told a tale of the usual pattern her mistress was a captive in a vast and gloomy castle along with forty-four other young and beautiful girls pretty much all of them princesses they had been languishing in that cruel captivity for twenty-six years the masters of the castle were three stupendous brothers each with four arms and one eye the eye in the centre of the forehead and as big as a fruit sort of fruit not mentioned their usual slovenliness in statistics would you believe it the king and the whole round table were in raptures over this preposterous opportunity for adventure every knight of the table jumped for the chance and begged for it but to their vexation and chagrin the king conferred it upon me Who had not asked for it at all. A Knight's Average If knights-errant were to be believed, not all castles were desirable places to seek hospitality in. As a matter of fact, knights-errant were not persons to be believed, that is, measured by modern standards of veracity. Yet, measured by the standards of their own time and scaled accordingly, you got the truth it was very simple you discounted a statement ninety seven percent the rest was fact sixth century kingdoms kings and kingdoms were as thick in britain as they had been in little palestine in joshua's time when people had to sleep with their knees pulled up because they couldn't stretch out without a passport nature training. Training is everything. Training is all there is to a person. We speak of nature. What we call by that misleading name is heredity and training. We have no thoughts of our own, no opinions of our own. They are transmitted to us, trained into us. All that is original in us, and therefore fairly creditable or discreditable 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 to us, can be covered up and hidden by the point of a cambric needle." all the rest being atoms contributed by, and inherited from, a procession of ancestors that stretches back a billion years to the atom-clam, or grasshopper, or monkey, from whom our race has been so tediously, and ostentatiously, and unprofitably developed. CONSCIENCE If I had the remaking of man, he wouldn't have any conscience it is one of the most disagreeable things connected with a person and although it certainly does a great deal of good it cannot be said to pay in the long run it would be much better to have less good and more comfort still this is only my opinion and i am only one man others with less experience may think differently they have a right to their views i only stand to this i have noticed my conscience for many years and i know it is more trouble and bother to me than anything else i started with i suppose that in the beginning i prized it because we prize anything that is ours and yet how foolish it was to think so if we look at it in another way we see how absurd it is if i had an anvil in me would i prize it of course not and yet when you come to think there is no real difference between a conscience and an anvil, I mean, for comfort. I have noticed it a thousand times, and you could dissolve an anvil with acids, when you couldn't stand it any longer. But there isn't any way that you can work off a conscience, at least so it will stay worked off, not that I know of, anyway. THE GERMAN TONGUE I was gradually coming to have a mysterious and shuddery reverence for this girl. Nowadays, whenever she pulled out from the station and got her train fairly started on one of those horizonless transcontinental sentences of hers, it was borne in upon me that I was standing in the awful presence of the mother of the German language. I was so impressed with this that sometimes, when she began to empty one of these sentences on me, I unconsciously took the very attitude of reverence and stood uncovered and if words had been water, I had been drowned sure. She had exactly the German way. Whatever was in her mind to be delivered, whether a mere remark or a sermon or a cyclopedia, or the history of a war, she would get it into a single sentence or die. Whenever the literary German dives into a sentence, that is the last you are going to see of him till he emerges on the other side of his Atlantic with his verb in his mouth. GOVERNMENT BY THE PEOPLE There is a phrase which has grown so common in the world's mouth that it has come to seem to have sense and meaning, the sense and meaning implied when it is used, that is the phrase which refers to this or that or the other nation as possibly being capable of self-government, and the implied sense of it is that there has been a nation somewhere, some time or other, which wasn't capable of it wasn't as able to govern itself as some self-appointed specialists were or would be to govern it the master minds of all nations in all ages have sprung an affluent multitude from the mass of the nation and from the mass of the nation only not from its privileged classes and so no matter what the nation's intellectual grade was whether high or low the bulk of its ability was in the long ranks of its nameless and its poor, and so it never saw the day that it had not the material in abundance whereby to govern itself, which is to assert an always self-proven fact, that even the best-governed and most free and most enlightened monarchy is still behind the best condition attainable by its people, and that the same is true of kindred governments of lower grades, all the way down to the lowest. Prophecy A prophet doesn't have to have any brains. They are good to have, of course, for the ordinary exigencies of life, but they are of no use in professional work. It is the restfullest vocation there is. When the spirit of prophecy comes upon you, you merely take your intellect and lay it off in a cool place for a rest, and unship your jaw and leave it alone. It will work itself. The result is prophecy. HARD WORK Words realize nothing, vivify nothing to you, unless you have suffered in your own person the thing which the words try to describe. There are wise people who talk ever so knowingly and complacently about the working classes, and satisfy themselves that a day's hard intellectual work is very much harder than a day's hard manual toil and is righteously entitled to much bigger pay why they really think that you know because they know all about the one but haven't tried the other but i know all about both and so as far as i am concerned there isn't money enough in the universe to hire me to swing a pickaxe thirty days but i will do the hardest kind of intellectual work for just as near nothing as you can cipher it down and I will be satisfied, too. Still Hope Yes, there is plenty good enough material for a republic in the most degraded people that ever existed, even the Russians, plenty of manhood in them, even in the Germans, if one could but force it out of its timid and suspicious privacy, to overthrow and trample in the mud any throne that ever was set up, and any nobility that ever supported it the human race toward the shaven monk who trudged along with his cowl tilted back and the sweat washing down his fat jowls the coal-burner was deeply reverent to the gentleman he was abject with the small farmer and the free mechanic he was cordial and gossipy and when a slave passed by with a countenance respectfully lowered this chap's nose was in the air. He couldn't even see him. Well, there are times when one would like to hang the whole human race and finish the farce. THE KING IN SLAVERY We had a rough time for a month, tramping to and fro in the earth and suffering. And what Englishman was the most interested in the slavery question by that time? His Grace, the king. Yes. FROM BEING THE MOST INDIFFERENT, HE WAS BECOME THE MOST INTERESTED. HE WAS BECOME THE BITTEREST HATER OF THE INSTITUTION I HAD EVER HEARD TALK. NOW AND THEN WE HAD AN ADVENTURE. ONE NIGHT WE WERE OVERTAKEN BY A SNOWSTORM, WHILE STILL A MILE FROM THE VILLAGE WE WERE MAKING FOR. ALMOST INSTANTLY WE WERE SHUT UP AS IN A FOG, THE DRIVING SNOW WAS SO THICK. YOU COULDN'T SEE A THING, AND WE WERE SOON LOST. The slave-driver lashed us desperately, for he saw ruin before him, but his lashings only made matters worse, for they drove us further from the road, and from likelihood of succor. So we had to stop at last, and slump down in the snow where we were. The storm continued until toward midnight, then ceased. By this time two of our feebler men and three of our women were dead, and others passed moving and threatened with death. Our master was nearly beside himself, he stirred up the living and made us stand, jump, slap ourselves, to restore our circulation, and he helped as well as he could with his whip. Now came a diversion. We heard shrieks and yells, and soon a woman came running and crying, and seeing our group, she flung herself into our midst and begged for protection. A mob of people came tearing after her, some with torches, and they said she was a witch, who had caused several cows to die by a strange disease, and practiced her arts by help of a devil in the form of a black cat. This poor woman had been stoned until she hardly looked human. She was so battered and bloody. The mob wanted to burn her. "'Well, now, what do you suppose our master did?' when we closed around this poor creature to shelter her, he saw his chance. He said, Burn her here, or they shouldn't have her at all. Imagine that! They were willing. They fastened her to a post. They brought wood and piled it about her. They applied the torch, while she shrieked and pleaded and strained her two young daughters to her breast. And our brute, with a heart solely for business, lashed us into position about the stake— and warmed us into life and commercial value by the same fire which took away the innocent life of that poor harmless mother that was the sort of master we had i took his number that snowstorm cost him nine of his flock and he was more brutal to us than ever after that for many days together he was so enraged over his loss end of chapter 11